Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Elisa Childers here. Have you ever been talking with someone or even sharing your faith or beliefs with someone only to be misunderstood, only to be stereotyped and have your motivations questioned as well as your actual character? Well, stay tuned because today we're going to talk about five common misconceptions about traditional Christians. ago, I wrote a blog post called Five Popular Misconceptions of Traditional Christians. And I've never posted it because each time that I go to post it, I just have this hesitation because I think that when we write about controversial topics or we talk about topics that others could perceive as hostile, there's a tendency to read disagreement with a tone in which it wasn't intended. And what I mean is that when someone reads a post that might be about something that they are for, but the post is against, they can read into it a hostile tone or even a hateful attitude that's actually not there. So in my case, I've actually been contacted by a couple of people who would be more on the liberal or progressive side of things who expressed some surprise when they actually heard my speaking voice because when they were reading one of my articles in which I was taking issue with something that they agreed with, they were reading into it a hostile tone. And so when they heard the heart behind it, it sort of softened things. And so I decided not to do this in blog form, but rather to do a podcast because then hopefully the heart behind what is being said will come through. Because I actually don't have a heart of hostility or anger toward progressive Christians or liberal Christians. I actually have a heart for them uh, because I have a heart for everyone. I have a heart for people in general to experience and embrace the fullness of what it means to follow Jesus. And we can learn what that is through uh, historic and traditional Christianity. So let's talk about that word, traditional Christians. That's, that's part of the title is Misconceptions of Traditional Christians. Now, it's very difficult to choose an adjective because actually I don't think there should be an adjective in front of the word Christian. It really just is one thing. But for the sake of clarity, I chose the word traditional because there are other words that carry a lot of baggage for people, like uh, words like conservative or evangelical. I mean, I don't even know what those words mean anymore. So uh, then I almost used the word historic, but I decided to go with traditional because what I mean by traditional Christian is someone who believes that the Bible is infallible and authoritative and someone who would like agree with and affirm 
the early Christian creeds. So the traditional Christian, what I mean by that, and for the purposes of this podcast, is a Christian with a very high view of Scripture, infallible, authoritative, and would affirm doctrines like the uh, blood atonement of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, these basic uh, tra- you know, traditional Christian doctrines. All right, so let's talk about this blog post that I wrote. I'm going to read some quotes, and this is the part that I, I think could be combative if somebody's just reading it. And it's a little combative saying it too, but you'll see why in a moment. So let me read uh, these quotes from you, and then I'll tell you what they're from. Knuckle-dragging, mouth-breathing, troll armies of the Lord, violent, spitting, oxymoronic horde of professed Christians. Got, uh, got to give them creativity points for that one. Trolls, a cancer in the body of Christ. No one has permission to think for themselves. Rigid tribalism divided into warring fiefdoms and managed by rigid rulers. Cowardly, poison in the system, purveyors of the nastiest character assassination attempts committed since the advent of the internet. Who do you think these words are describing? Uh, Nazis, some kind of rogue Kool-Aid drinking cult, uh, an undead sect of flesh-eating Baptist zombies? (laughs) No, these words are actually written by progressive Christians about traditional Christians. And by the way, anything that I quote in this podcast, I will put in the footnotes so you know I'm not just making this stuff up. So of course there's irony uh, in a group of people that pretty much present themselves as promoters of tolerance and acceptance, calling a whole group of people bloodthirsty warlords (laughs) because they disagree with them. And so it's really clear with this type of mentality that the sacred cow of tolerance does not take kindly to dissenters. Now, when progressive Christianity first emerged into the mainstream of Christian thought uh, several years ago, it's not that it was a new thought, it was just kind of a new label. It brought with it some valid criticisms of Christian culture that certainly needed to be thought through and responded to and corrected. There were certain practices that were not biblical, that in some ways they were right to criticize. But the problem is is that by now, many of these critiques have become so overblown and have evolved into a caricature of what the real problem is. So now it seems as though some progressives... In a way, they're just like quivering in the shadow of this imaginary monster they've created uh, really out of their own propaganda. They've, they've demonized more traditional Christians in a way that uh, just really isn't accurate. And so, you know, just to be clear, I'm not saying that every progressive Christian is a sarcastic jerk. In fact, I know many that are very kind, very patient, very loving with those uh, people that disagree with them. But some of the more prominent voices are a little bit more mocking. We did a podcast on mocking. So the the majority of traditional Christians that I know and that I follow on social media that I know in real life, they can't be accurately described by the misconceptions that we're going to talk about in a minute. And these particular misconceptions are ones that I've experienced personally, every one of them. And I wonder if you have too. So let's look at misconception number one. Our beliefs are fear-driven. Now, have you heard this? Like, have you had a conversation with somebody where you were expressing something you believe 
and they accused you of being fearful or even with a really condescending tone said something like, you know, one day you'll break free from all this fear and you'll be, you'll be okay then. Well, here's an example from my own life. I have written about the fact that I used to be in a church that is now a progressive Christian community before I really understood what that term meant and before I really knew what it was the church would end up believing. And I remember in one of the classes, somebody asking, why do so many conservative Christians disagree with liberal theology? Or in other words, like, why don't they get this? Why won't they accept this kind of new way of thinking? And after several moments of just puzzled stares, it was like they were stumped. Somebody answered, fear. It has to be fear. And this is something that I've encountered on the uh, comment section of my blog a lot too, especially on any post that has to do with progressive Christians. There is this accusation that you just must believe this because you're fearful, which is really interesting because it doesn't really occur to them that we might believe the things we do simply because we believe that they're true. And then something to think about too is that fear isn't always a bad thing. In fact, fear is actually really healthy. My friend Hillary over at Mama Bear Apologetics wrote a great blog post that I'll also post in the podcast notes in which she responded to a progressive Christian blog that claimed we shouldn't be teaching our kids apologetics because it teaches them to be fearful. It teaches them to have beliefs that are based out of fear. And so I'm just going to read from Hillary's blog post because, frankly, she can say it better than I can. Fear, like pain, is evidence of a healthy mind. The absence of fear is unhealthy. It's called, and then she, she says what the disease is called, which I'm not even going to try to say it because I will butcher it. But there is a disease that is characterized by the absence of fear. And then she goes on to say, an excess of fear is also unhealthy. It's called anxiety. Unfounded fear, also unhealthy. Those are called phobias. But fearsome things merit fear. Healthy fear is a healthy response to danger. Scripture doesn't teach that there is nothing to fear. Why else would Satan be portrayed as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour? Why else would Ephesians 6, 10 through 18 tell us to suit up for battle? And yet we are not called to a life marked by fear. Why not? Because greater is he that is within us than he that is within the world. And then she goes on to talk about how many people will just get rid of the problem of fear by denying that there's any danger. You know, there is no roaring lion, there is no hell, there is no judgment, there is no wrath of God or anything that would, would possibly be kind of negative or unpleasant. We're just going to pretend that all that stuff doesn't exist. And of course, you know, if those things are true, then a healthy godly fear is appropriate. All right, misconception number two. We take everything in the Bible literally. Have you heard this? Have, have you heard people accuse you of being a literalist or how stupid you are for taking the Bible literally? Uh, I'm going to read you an example from a progressive Christian blog post uh, that was written a few years ago by Marcus Borg, critiquing the way that so-called conservative Christians interpret the Bible. But I honestly don't know any actual Christians who fit this characterization. So here's what he said in his blog post. Why should we imagine that God speaks only in literal, factual language? Why cannot God speak in the language of poetry, metaphor, and myth? Or what would it mean to take a phrase like the right hand of God literally? Does God have hands and a right side and a left side? 
A literal interpretation of the Bible as a whole is literally impossible. And to that, I would say, I agree. (laughs) And so does every other uh, conservative, traditional, evangelical Christian pretty much in the world. You know, I've taken several seminary classes in theology, and I have never even one time had a conservative theology professor imply that the Bible should be taken literally from cover to cover. This is called hermeneutics. It's the study of interpreting the Bible. And in order to do that, we have to consider the genre. There's poetry in the Bible. There's allegory. There's uh, all kinds of figures of speech. There's simile. So you have to consider the genre, if it's history or if it's parable or what are we looking at. And then you have to consider who it was written to, what the culture was that they were living in, who wrote it, and how did the original readers interpret it. Much like if you had a book of poetry today, you would take into account its genre. If you were reading a history book, you would take into account its genre. And it's the same with the Bible. It's, it's not just one book. It's a collection of books that, that all have different genres. So if we were to answer his barrage of questions, let's just go through it. So he says, why should we imagine that God speaks only in literal, factual language? Well, we shouldn't. And then he says, why cannot God speak in the language of poetry, metaphor, and myth? Well, he can. Now, I guess it would depend on what you're considering a myth. If you're taking history as a myth, then I would probably take issue with that. And then he says, or what would it mean to take a phrase like the right hand of God literally? Like I said, there's not a conservative theology professor out there that would tell you to take the hand of God or that God has wings or that we, when it describes God as a face, that, that we're to take that literally. That is metaphoric language talking about a spirit being that does not have a body in language that we can understand. And then he goes on to say, does God have hands? No. And a right side and a left side? No. I mean, unless you're talking about the incarnate Christ. And then he says, literal interpretation of the Bible as a whole is literally impossible. And to that, I would say I heartily agree. And so really, this whole argument is just a straw man argument that we've talked about in podcasts before. A straw man argument is a logical fallacy in which the person will kind of construct this false argument that you haven't really made, but it's a lot easier to refute than your actual argument. So in in a way, it's like they're building up a straw man because a straw man is a lot easier to knock down than a real man. So this is really a, a straw man argument because any quality seminary or theology professor or theological institution worth its salt is going to teach you to recognize figures of speech in the Bible. We don't believe that uh, Jesus is a loaf of bread or a physical door with hinges. So misconception number three, because we believe hell exists, we must want people to go there. This is one you'll see a lot on Twitter and just in, in ki- those kind of debates where people just put in those snappy one-liners that, you know, you, you evangelicals or conservatives just love your hell so much, you know. And it, just to give you an idea of this one, a progressive writer, Rachel Held Evans, wrote in a blog post a few years ago, she said, some Christians are more offended by the idea of everyone going to heaven than by the idea of everyone going to hell. In reality, most traditional Christians that I know, in fact, I would say every Christian that I know, 
we struggle deeply with the concept of hell. It's, it's a difficult thing that we all have to wrestle with. At least any thinking Christian is going to wrestle with this extremely difficult concept. I think the difference is, is that we may not like it, but we recognize that there is a reality about hell. Hell either exists or it doesn't exist. And what we feel about it isn't going to change the reality. So even if we don't like it, even if we don't understand it or we don't get it, we acknowledge that if God said it's real, it's real. And so rather than denying it and living uh, this happy, carefree existence where there's no hell, we do our best to line up our, our thoughts and our hearts with what reality really looks like. And so actually holding to the historic position on hell is one of the main reasons that so many of my friends are so evangelistic. They don't want anyone to go there. So that's just a, another kind of straw man argument there. Misconception number four, because we believe in God's design for marriage, we are promoting an agenda of hate. And boy, we are seeing this play out even in current events right now with the Nashville statement. If you haven't, uh, if you're living under a rock somewhere and you haven't heard about the Nashville statement, uh, I'll post a link to that as well. But it's uh, basically a bunch of evangelical thought leaders came together in Nashville and formulated a statement on God's design for marriage and gender and sexuality. And in my opinion, it's beautifully written. They put things in there that need to be in there. Uh, they acknowledged, for example, that a Christian who experiences same-sex attraction can still live a life of purity before God. Another thing I'm thankful for in the Nashville Statement, I think it's the, the point number 10, they were careful to include the point that Christians cannot agree to disagree about this issue. Biblical sexuality, biblical views of gender, these are things that we cannot agree to disagree about. I've written on this myself where I've argued that because we can't be in community together, in fellowship together, and be confused on this issue. And the reason is because people's lives are at stake. I mean, a pastor can't just leave it up in the air when he's got someone in his congregation that needs guidance on this issue. And we as brothers and sisters in Christ need to be united in celebrating the beauty of what God created men and women for and what he created marriage for. So I appreciate that they, that they put that point in there. But believing these things does not mean that we are hateful or that we're promoting an agenda of hate. And so last year... Uh, we all remember the horrific slaughter of 49 people at the Orlando nightclub by an ISIS sympathizer. Now remember that ISIS, that the Islamic doctrines state that homosexuality is punishable by death. I mean, in, in some Islamic countries, they're throwing gay people off the roofs of buildings. So compare that, contrast that with the Nashville Statement. If you believe that the Nashville Statement is hateful, Compare and contrast that. Now, I'm not saying, of course, that all Muslims would do that or that they would affirm that. Of course, there are many moderate Muslims in the world uh, acknowledge that fully. But there's a difference between what an ideology teaches 
and what its adherents practice. So if you look at just the teachings, look at the Nashville Statement, look at the biblical mandates on this, and then compare that to the Islamic teaching about what's to be done about it. And I think you'll see a stark contrast there. So 49 souls were, were slaughtered by an ISIS sympathizer. And then Jen Hatmaker went to her social media, to Facebook, and basically placed the blame solely at the feet of traditional Christians. So here's what she wrote. Anti-LGBTQ sentiment has paved a long runway to hate crimes. When the gay community is denied civil liberties and respect and dignity, when we make gay jokes, when we say, that's so gay, when we turn up our noses, I'm sorry, when we turn our noses up or down, when we qualify every solitary statement of love with a caveat of disapproval, when we consistently disavow everything about the LGBTQ community, we create a culture ripe for hate. We are complicit. Now, there's a couple things in here I would agree with her. Uh, making jokes, mocking, making fun, that's a sin. And we need to repent of that. If we think that someone's struggle is a punchline of a joke, God help us. I agree with her on that. I also agree with her that we don't need to qualify every solitary statement of love with a caveat of disapproval. As we love our gay friends and neighbors, we don't need to remind them every time we see them that we believe homosexuality is a sin. We don't do that with other things. So we can love without constant reminders of what we disapprove of. I agree with her on that. But where she and I are going to severely part ways here is at the end when she says, we are complicit. If you follow her logic all the way through, every apostle and every disciple of Jesus is complicit. If you follow her logic all the way through, Jesus himself is complicit because Jesus is the one who actually defined marriage. And he appealed to Genesis of the creation of male and females. So if you follow it through, then Jesus himself is complicit. See, this is not a matter of opinion. This isn't my opinion. I follow Jesus. And what Jesus says about anything is what I say about it. I don't have a choice. I'm left with no alternative but to do what Jesus does and believe what Jesus taught. And what Jen Hatmaker doesn't seem to understand about that situation is that the perpetrator of the crime wasn't reacting to some kind of Christian hate. He was actually fulfilling the doctrines of his own belief system, a, a, a belief system that actually brings death and hate to very uh, many people. It's the Christians of the world that have stood up for the rights of others all throughout history. So it's just a, it's a ridiculous argument. So most of the Christians that I know and interact with, they have a real heart of love for gay people. There's a, a deep love there. In fact, it's out of love for our gay friends and family that we take the issue so seriously and endeavor to know the heart of God on it. And when it's done with compassion, speaking out for God's heart on this issue is not hate. It's actually love. It's actually hate to not speak truth to anyone about what's true about God. And when it's done with compassion, it's love and it's actually good news. And there are people who are living this out all, all the time. There's Sam Albury, Jackie Hill Perry, Rosaria Butterfield, uh, Christopher Yawn are just a few of the Christians who have experienced these desires and have laid those things down for the sake of the cross. So I encourage you to check them out if you don't know who they are. 
I think they've all written books. Maybe I don't know if Jackie Hill Perry's written a book, but there's some great material out there from some of these uh, great men and women of God. Misconception number five, we are afraid of questions. Have you gotten this? I get this all the time. And the implication is that if you have landed on an answer for something, that you must somehow be afraid of questions. And that just couldn't be further from the truth. And here's a perfect example of that. Just before Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, first came out, Rachel Held Evans wrote a blog post blasting certain traditional Christians for opposing it. She assumed that the only problem they had was the fact simply that Rob Bell had asked questions, like as if his poking around was stirring up unnecessary trouble. And so here's what she wrote. The message was clear. Ask questions about heaven and hell and you will be cast out. But here's what she's not getting. It's not... Bell's questions that were the problem. I know many intelligent traditional Christians who consistently and cordially engage with all kinds of topics, including the question of hell. The problem some Christians had with his book, it wasn't his question. It was actually the answer that was neatly tucked away within the question. And you all know what this is about. You know when a question isn't really a question, but it's really an assertion masked as a question. And so really what was upsetting some traditional Christian thought leaders was that Bell had really claimed to have discovered a non-traditional teaching on the subject of hell, one that, and this is a quote from his promo video, one that would be, quote, better than what we've been told or taught. So he's really implying that the redeeming work of Jesus might be universal. You know, this is great news, better than what we've been told by uh, all the apostles and the prophets in the past. And, and if you consider Bell and other progressive Christians' view of the Bible, that actually makes perfect sense. I've read quotes from Brian McLaren on previous podcasts about the view of Scripture that so many progressive Christians have. And McLaren describes it like the scriptural books and the stories are like fossils in layers of sediment, as if Christianity is evolving. And then we can look at some of these texts and kind of dust them off and and decide if we think they are true and good, and if not, we discard them. So Paul may have gotten this wrong, Peter may have gotten that wrong, Moses may have gotten this wrong, and that's sort of the, the approach to Scripture. So when Rob Bell came out with this book, it wasn't just an innocent inquiry. His book actually called historic Christian orthodoxy into question. So So I guess this is the bottom line, and I'm just going to read this from the post I had originally written. I wrote this, when relativism rules, when biblical literacy is at an all-time low, and when the dogma of postmodern indoctrination is the lens through which the world is interpreted, it's no surprise that disagreement can so easily be perceived as attack. Thus, stereotypes are born, and those who dare to disagree are labeled as poison in the system and the marketplace of ideas is closed for business. So I want to unpack what I mean by this a little bit. Of course, relativism is the idea that whatever's true is what you feel. That's kind of just put simply. And of course, biblical illiteracy is a huge problem, especially among Christians. We don't know our Bibles, and that's a problem. And we're easily deceived when we don't know our Bibles. And so I go on to talk about the indoctrination or the dogma of postmodern indoctrination. And what I mean by that is postmodernism was a reaction to modernism. 
uh, and modernism was basically, I mean, it was a lot of things, but one of the ideas was that objective truth existed. You know, it was the, the age of reason that ushered in all of this objective truth about science and all of this stuff. And then postmodernism recognized the failure of modernism, and then everything became subjective. It was like your feelings tell you what's true. And so that's, the, that's where we are now. And it's really a dogma. It's an indoctrination. Your kids are being indoctrinated with this type of relativism. And then the other thing that we're sort of indoctrinated with is pluralism. And in a religious sense, pluralism, religious pluralism, is accepting all religious thoughts and ideas as equally valid and true. Well, of course, this is illogical. Even though it's popular and you're sort of considered a bigot if you don't accept that, but let's just let's just look at this logically. You don't even need a Bible or a theology book for this. All you need is some logic. So there's a law of logic called the law of non-contradiction. And the law of non-contradiction states that two contradictory statements can't both be true at the same time in the same sense. So if we apply that to religion, let's just take two major world religions, Islam and Christianity. And I've talked about this before in a video, but Islam and Christianity both believe in Jesus. They both acknowledge that Jesus was a historical person, that he was a prophet, that he did miracles, that he's coming again. And there's a high regard for Jesus in both religious systems. But here's the difference. Christianity says that Jesus was resurrected. And in fact, we claim that our entire belief system stands or falls based on the historical reality of Jesus' resurrection. Like if it's not a real historical event, Christianity is false. And Paul affirmed this when he said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain and you're still in your sins. Now, Islam teaches that Jesus never died, that he was replaced by another or that it was made to look like Jesus, but they don't believe that he actually died. Well, if he didn't die, then he couldn't be resurrected. So if Islam is correct, then Christianity as an entire religion is absolutely false. And these are core issues of belief. Now, most religions are going to agree on some things. I've written a post in the past about how many religions affirm some sort of form of the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do to you. But, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to acknowledge that it's a good thing to be nice to each other. But when we go to the core issues, that's where the disagreements are. That's where the law of non-contradiction is violated and where religious pluralism is just frankly illogical. So this postmodern indoctrination is a huge part of where this is all coming from. So I'll close with this. I know that there's somebody out there listening to this saying, hey, I know some Christians who have acted in all five of the ways that you're describing as misconceptions. I know a Christian who's just a total jerk, right? So to that, I would say this. I fully acknowledge that there are hypocrites in the world. I fully acknowledge that there are some Christians that don't behave in a Christ-like manner online. I fully acknowledge that there are some Christians that just frankly don't seem to have the love of Jesus in their hearts. But with that said, the point I'm trying to make with this podcast is that these misconceptions are not true of the vast majority of Christians. They're not true of what has characterized Christians uh, for the entirety of church history. Most Christians that I know, that I follow, that I, I encounter in my everyday life are doing their best to be salt and light in the world 
and to show the love of Jesus to those around them. And so these caricatures that have arisen really from offense, really from people being offended that what Christianity teaches is uh, in contradiction to what they believe. And so rather than living out some comic strip version of strident religionism or something like that, most of the Christians I know are doing their best to live out their beliefs with grace. They're caring for refugees. They're helping women with unplanned pregnancies. They're adopting babies. They're feeding and caring for the homeless. They're reaching out to sex workers. They're spreading the gospel and generally just being the body of Christ. So when you recognize some of these misconceptions, I hope that you will be encouraged by this podcast. And remember the words of Paul in Galatians 6, 9, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. listening to this podcast and would like to sign up to receive my blog posts and podcasts by email, you can go to alisachilders.com and click the subscribe button. Or you can simply subscribe to the Alisa Childers podcast on iTunes. 